Welcome to STEMWire Live. I'm Liza Cordero, your host from CNA Education. Today, we continue our conversation about community schools and community college models. During part one of applying lessons learned from community schools and community colleges, we gained an understanding of community schools and the current research on the topic. Part two will focus on examples of success, resources for students, and inside perspectives on next steps for legislators and school leaders. So let's get started. I know that we learned a little bit about each of our guests in part one of this podcast, but just for those listeners that are tuning in for the first time, Kathy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest in this topic? Sure. Thanks, Liza. I'm Kathy Hughes. I'm a senior research scientist with CNA Education, and I've spent many years studying college and career readiness and the high school to college transition. So my research has always straddled secondary and post-secondary education, and that line between them sometimes doesn't really make much sense. So it's interesting to learn about effective practices in one sector and see what might be adapted for the other one. Excellent. And Jose, how about you? Uh, Yeah, my name is Jose Munoz. I'm the director of the Coalition for Community Schools. That's an initiative of the Institute for Educational Leadership. So the coalition is an alliance of over 200 local, state, and national partners who really see schools as hubs of their community where everyone has an opportunity to belong and work together and and thrive. And so with the Institute of Educational Leadership, we're really about mobilizing and preparing leaders to break down some systemic barriers that pose uh, barriers to opportunities for young people and their families to succeed and thrive. So it's interesting to see how community schools and community colleges, uh, being anchor institutions, can help alleviate that. And Sarah, how about you? I know you're from Single Stop. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. nonprofit. It's based um, out of New York, and we work to build pathways out of poverty by leveraging partnerships and technology to connect people to existing resources, all through a unique one-stop shop. And we partner both with community-based organizations and with colleges. I'm the National Education Director, so I oversee all of our work in the education field, uh, which is all post-secondary right now, though um, certainly opportunities to expand um, into uh, elementary and secondary education as well. And Mark, our final guest, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, thank you. It's great to be here. My name is Mark Mitsui, the president of Portland Community College. It is the largest higher education institution in the state of Oregon. We serve about 90,000 students a year, and we're also the largest high school. We serve about 7,000 high school students here through a dual credit program. And prior to coming to Portland, I was a deputy assistant secretary for community colleges at the U.S. Department of Education. And I would say a common passion or thread throughout all my experiences has been How do we work with our local community as community colleges to broaden the passage to opportunity for folks that live in the areas that we serve? And that's what we're focused on at PCC with a variety of different initiatives. So perfect transition for me, Mark. Thank you for uh, sharing with us. What are some of those interventions that you have advanced to meet the unique needs of your adult learners there at Portland Community College? Oh, absolutely. And one, 
begin to look at the needs of our community and uh, what's rising to the top for us. Housing and affordability are a big issue for our students. And of course, it's all interrelated with food insecurity and other types of challenges. And I know in the first podcast, the research from the Wisconsin Hope Lab was referenced, I'll briefly repeat it, and that is that uh, a significant proportion of community college students, and 33,000 were studied, suffered from homelessness, about 13%. And another, uh, I would say, near majority, if not majority of students uh, experience housing and or food insecurity while they're pursuing their associate's degree. And it's really, really tough to graduate when you're hungry, graduate when you don't have a place to stay or you're not sure where you're going to be. In addition to that, um, we know that the majority of our students are um, part-time because they, they have to work. They have to work in order to uh, survive while they're going to school. That means that they, they work more and study less. So the initiatives that we're looking at to help our students to study more and work less so that they can complete have to do with leveraging the existing resources. And this is important in a tight resource environment. We're looking at, uh, we received some funding from the state of Oregon community college system to lead our uh, 17 community colleges in the development of a community practice around the integration of federal and state benefits and services. So how can we leverage Pell and TANF and unemployment and Section 8 housing and um, other resources around students while they're going to college so that they can complete, enter into a higher wage, family wage, career pathway and achieve what Jeffrey Canada calls escape velocity out of poverty. Um, uh, So that's one initiative. Uh, Another related initiative has to do with uh, SNAP, uh, we are also the state leader around the SNAP consortium. It's the 50-50 program where the USDA provides about 50% reimbursement. And so uh, we are helping uh, low-income SNAP recipients access through a career pathway approach um, a, a better life. And career pathways is another important approach um, for us. Um, one of our pathways had about a 94% completion rate uh, and uh, had virtually eliminated the academic attainment gap and placed students at a very high rate into uh, into jobs and careers. Um, so in addition, uh, there are many other initiatives like campus-based childcare. We have campus uh, childcare centers in each of our campuses. I want to put a plug in for the C campus federal program at the U.S. Department of Education. We received a C-Campus grant, but child care is a huge barrier for our parents that are attending school. And we also have um, on-campus pantries on each of our campuses of leverage, both through student support through the SNA fee, as well as support from the community, places like Whole Foods. Those are a few of the strategies. Um, a, a quick, another example, we just passed our, our bond. The community provided uh, a lot of support during our bond election. Our first project will be a, what we hope will be a center of excellence around the integration of services and benefits, both public and private based, in order to help students 
both access community, our community college, but also to complete. And we're working also to ensure that uh, the career pathways that they go into are linked to automation-resistant, higher-wage uh, careers. So uh, those are a few of the strategies and initiatives that we're undertaking in order to help um, our students in our community uh, to access a better life. Sarah, I, I'm sure a lot of what Mark just said resonates with you. Your organization, Single Stop, facilitates partnerships between community colleges and community nonprofits across the country to develop these solutions for academic and non-academic barriers to college completion. So let me ask you, what are some, some of the impact of promising practices that you have seen across the country? Yeah, th thank you for that question. Um, and yeah, every everything that that Mark talked about, um, I'm I'm, stab I'm sitting here clapping, um, <laughs> excited about um, just the the work that he's been doing to meet the needs of, of students um, in Portland. Uh, you know, I, I think it's helpful if I I maybe start a little bit um, back where Single Stop got its beginning, and I'll and I'll be brief. But we um, we started because we saw this need of people who were eligible for benefits um, or other types of helping resources through the private sector, private nonprofits, um, and they, but they couldn't navigate to those resources. And, you know, navigating to, to resources is hard even when you're, when you're well-resourced and you have a job that allows you to have flexibility. And for, um, for people who are low-income, oftentimes they don't have flexibility um, of time or flexibility of transportation or um, even know kind of where to start. And so Single Stop started as a project of the Robin Hood Foundation in Manhattan back in 2001 to figure out how to do this. And what we um, ended up coming up with was a program model that um, rested in both uh, technology, high-touch case management, and partnerships with local agencies to meet the needs of, um, of individuals and families across, uh, initially, the New York City area. And so we started partnering with community-based organizations and uh, in, in 2007 rolled out as our own nonprofit out uh, from underneath the Robin Hood umbrella. Um, and in 2008, um, Kingsborough Community College approached Single Stop and said, I have students who are who need services and they're going to agencies in the community that have single that are doing the single stop program. Can we do that on our campus? And we said, uh, we I, sure, I guess. I don't know if we can. Why not? Why couldn't we? And so it really hadn't occurred to us um, to be working in the college space until um, Kingsborough said, we, we want it here. And so um, we started in 2009 working with several uh, CUNY colleges initially. And um, what we found is that um, students were able to connect to benefits. And we have, over um, really the past nine years, have expanded um, into eight states now, um, offering the Single Stop program on campuses, uh, about 28 campuses across those eight states. And um, just to talk a little bit about um, both our outcomes, uh, or excuse me, our outputs and our outcomes, uh, since 2009, when we first started working with community colleges, we've connected over 248,000 students 
and their families to over $511 million in benefits and supportive services. So it's just a huge amount of money back in the pockets of these individuals um, that, um, again, it's all out there. It's We're not creating anything new. It's all existing public benefits or private benefits that um, that people just need help navigating to. They just need to know where to start. And so that that is what we've been doing. And, um, and just to talk about some of the resources beyond those public benefits, which are SNAP, WIC, health insurance, earned income, tax credit, um, we also work with colleges to identify what those wraparound services are. And many colleges start with um, kind of a, a core set of wraparound services, which is um, offering free tax preparation on their campus so we consult with the college to figure out the best way to do that on their campus so that students can get their taxes done um, right there on campus, not have to worry about transportation to another agency. Um, legal services and financial counseling as well. So um, all of that combined contributes to that $511 million that we've helped uh, draw down in supportive services um, to those 248000 uh, individuals and families. And just a little bit about um, the outcome of all of that, right? So it's great that we've connected these people to these resources, but what does all that mean? Um, we've participated in several um, independent studies, um, both with RAND Corporation and with Metis, um, to really look at the impact across community colleges and different geographies, different sizes, um, so that we can see what's happening. And um, the most recent full study that was released was released about a year ago by, uh, by RAND Corporation. And what we found, uh, we did propensity score match, or RAND, excuse me, did propensity score matching to look at um, students who um, were utilizing single-stop services and compare them to their peers um, who were as likely to graduate college or as not likely to graduate college um, who weren't utilizing single-stop services. And what they found is those who did um, utilize the single-stop program on that campus were more likely to attempt more credits, earn more credits. They had higher GPAs, and on average, they were... Um, more likely to persist by about six to eleven percentage points, um, and um, and you know six to eleven percentage points. And remember that's percentage points. So the percent difference is actually um, you know a little bit uh, higher than than that. Um, it ranges between about nine percent and fifteen percent um, if you're looking at it that way. Um, but that that is how much the the retention persistence semester to semester. Uh, retention rate was increased um, through uh, through those single-stop services. And we've got a couple of other studies out in the field that we um, early results are showing are corroborating what we found in that RAND, uh, RAND evaluation, but we've got a couple more studies out with, um, with some of our other college partners as well. Thank you so much, Sarah. Now, during part one of our podcast, we heard all of our guests talk a little bit about the gaps that we have seen in some of these partnerships. We talked about legislative gaps, alignment gaps, research gaps. So the question that I, I pose to all of you today is, what are some of the greatest barriers to facilitating and sustaining these strong partnerships? So what are the barriers when you try and fill these gaps that you're finding out there? And Jose, I'll start with you. Yeah, I think one of the things I see the most, uh, people often mention trust. 
is a huge barrier, but uh, I'll go even a little deeper than trust itself. I think sometimes it's the, um, a big barrier is the time needed to build trust. We're always in a hurry. <laughs> We're always in a hurry to do things, and trust trust takes a lot of time. So I, think, I think that's one of the biggest barriers. And so when I think of partnerships, uh, I think of the school level. Um, when you think about a community school, community schools being uh, hyper-local, local decision-making and accountability are, are hallmarks of a community school. It is necessary for parents and family members and community members to be able to trust educators and administrators and vice versa in order for them to work together to put some of these systems in place we're speaking of. And so the very root cause of barriers to partnerships is just simple time to build the trust needed to further the conversation along. Mark, are you seeing any of that in your partnerships there in Portland? Have, have you had some of those trust issues or any other barriers? Well, I really appreciated Jose's comments because I, was, I wanted to also mention that a lot of what we're talking about is equity work. We're talking about social justice. And oftentimes communities of color well, there are trusted advocates and organizations in many, in most communities of color, uh, in most cities and, and regions of the country. And it's really, really important. I found that it's really, really critical to engage those trusted advocates in order to hear what the real community needs are, to be present um, in a both uh, real and yet strategic way. Uh, to inform the policies and initiatives that any institution or organization is going to implement within the community. Um, so we're working on developing a Communities of Color Council at PCC, uh, consisting of trusted advocates that we can uh, listen to, learn from, engage with in order to more effectively serve um, uh, our, our underserved communities in our region. Sarah, what are you seeing out there as barriers? Um, you know, I, I think that um, the this idea of trust is an important one. Um, I also think that there's, well, I don't think I know, that there's, um, we still struggle with issues around the stigma. Um, in terms of asking for help. And a lot of campuses have, uh, have taken on campaigns to kind of start to break down that stigma. Um, one of the things that we, um, we work with our partners on when they bring single stops to the campus is making it a regular part of what you do. You sign up for classes, you do your financial aid, you come do a single stop screening. Um, and it just becomes a regular part of what you do. And so it's not, um, you know, it doesn't become the stigma thing. I had to go to single stop and ask for money or I had to, um, you know, I had to figure this out or else, you know, I was going to not be able to stay in school. So I think um, we, we always have to constantly overcome that stigma. Um, I, I would say to the, the time and resources, right? Um, I don't, I don't, work with any community college that has um, a bucket of money just sitting around to do something with. In most cases, occasionally you'll get a, an appropriation from the state, potentially, or a grant. Um, but time and resources is, is a difficult thing. And really, in order to do this work, you have to have people, um, staff on campus, who are um, going to com 
commit to doing it and have the time in their day to doing it. Um, you know, it's, it, they can do other things, but um, but serving students in this way, um, it, it's a it's a lot of work. It's a it's work to do the outreach on campus, and it's work to do the outreach in the community. Um, and so I think um, I think those time and resources. There has to be a real commitment uh, from the top, um, kind of top down, top down, bottom up, and all across. Um, in order to provide these types of holistic services on, on a college campus. Kathy, I saw you shaking your head yes when yes. Sarah was talking. So you agree with much of what she says. What else would you add to the conversation? Well, yes, absolutely. I agree. And I just kept thinking about how in recent years, community colleges are being asked to do more, more, more with less, less, less all the time. And um, community colleges have always had partnerships, great partnerships with high schools for the dual enrollment programs, great partnerships with employers for the career and technical programs. I mean, they're, they're doing this, but then, you know, add on more and more layers and more and more partnerships and less funding, and, and it's challenging. I, I think I heard Mark mention a few grants, maybe there were state grants that are helping him with some of the great work that he's doing, but, but it is really challenging um, without the funds for this kind of infrastructure and, and outreach and really this you know, holistic caring for, for students. Can I add to that? Absolutely. This is Jose again. And just to add to that, I think one of the other barriers to partnerships in, along the trust conversation, uh, not just the scarcity of resources, but the fragmented, <laughs> fragmented resources where it, it is not flexible enough to allow uh, communities who are willing to come and sit at the table and build these bonds and creatively work together to create solutions, oftentimes our funding streams are fragmented uh, and not flexible enough to, for them to adjust and implement the solutions they've chosen, so, which, which leads to another trust issue because we, we, we uh, have coopetition <laughs> fighting for the fragmented funding. We all know in this room that community schools and community colleges, they serve as these anchor institutions. So how might the models address persistent equity challenges, particularly in high needs communities? And Mark, I'll turn to you for this question to be the first one to answer this question. Do you, do you see a lot of that in Portland? Yes, uh, we have a little college model at Jefferson High School which is in north, northeast Portland, which historically has been the African-American, the center of the African-American community, which, by the way, is that whole area is being gentrified. Um, our African-American community is being displaced um, farther and farther away from that area. But uh, Jefferson High School still is very diverse, and uh, we have a significant and important African-American student population working in partnership with our Cascade campus through the middle college program there. And the outcomes are very, very strong in terms of completion and uh, moving forward on to college. We also have an early college program at our Rock Creek campus, which is more rural. And we have a large Latino student population. Um, and uh, that is leveraging the anchor qualities of both the high school and the community college together in partnership. One example is that uh, the free and reduced lunch program 
comes with the student when they come to campus. So they actually bring their uh, free and reduced lunch uh, bags, so to speak. Uh, the, the lunches are, are made at the district, and then uh, when the bus comes, the, the lunches are there to meet the student. So a lot of the, the benefits that they can receive in, in both the high school and the college environment are leveraged in that kind of a model. Um, for the institution as a whole, uh, we are working on implementing critical race theory as part of our uh, administrative decision making. Um, we have several diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives occurring across campus. Um, and then we're also uh, making equitable student success as a focal point, our key priority for our college to not only improve success rates for all students, but also to eliminate and reduce uh, disparities in academic outcome, out, outcomes between um, our student, different student communities and populations. Uh, so it's, um, you know, it's, it's particularly poignant and important now, given our political landscape, for sort of the democratizing work of the community colleges across the country uh, to, to continue this work. And yes, funding is always an issue in being able to move forward the equity uh, agenda or any other student success related agenda. Sarah, how would you respond? Um, yes to all of that. <laughs> um, really, I mean, um, you know, I do think that there's a huge opportunity, um, you know, p particularly because these, um, these academic institutions, whether it's the community schools or the community college, um, you know, really does serve as that anchor institution. And, and all of these issues are tied together, right? Um, employers don't want to come, uh, you know, build industry and, and, an area where they don't have well-educated folks and uh, folks aren't going to be well-educated if they can't get their basic needs taken care of in college. Folks aren't going to go to college if they don't believe that it's even a possibility. And so um, so all, all of this is really interrelated and we talk um, a lot at Single Stop about you know how do we how do we create these referral networks um, between our community college partners and the the CBOs or nonprofit organizations that um, they're they're working with so that we can um, not just serve serve that student holistically on the campus but serve them really at any point of entry and we're working on um, some adaptations to our model and and. Um, our technology to, to do exactly that. Um, and our hope is that um, we can begin to get um, at some of these other underlying issues um, in these high need, high need communities. So, um, you know, I think, um, I think that there's still a lot to uncover and a lot of partnerships to be built. Um, but, uh, but I'm really proud to be, um, to be a part of this work and try to, try to figure that out. Jose, Kathy, anything else to add? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, so community schools really focus, uh, especially on relying on the wisdom of the most vulnerable populations uh, and also creating access to opportunity services and, and supports. And uh, so by doing that and including our most vulnerable populations, um, they're able to respond to the unique needs of each community. Uh, but also the unique needs of each uh, child and family member. And 
by bringing people consistently together, uh, it helps, it pursues equity by empowering the families and the students who are typically disempowered by barriers of participation and access. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a, a local example, a, a, a school who uh, was having a hard time engaging its Spanish-speaking population, uh, brought, engaged them in a conversation and asked what will work. They uh, said they couldn't get as engaged simply because uh, they didn't have any additional childcare for, those, for their students who were younger than kindergarten age. And so I asked when, what would they like to do. They said we would love to uh, bring our children to school and participate here with them here. So they created, they worked with a local elected official uh, and brought a portable in, was trained by the uh, university, but later received their certification from the local community college in early childhood development. And these 14 moms ran a early childhood co-op center voluntarily while they were getting their early childhood certification. Uh, about six months ago, uh, 11 of these moms, one of the moms is teaching, a couple of them are moving forward and getting higher accreditation, mm -hmm. and 11 of them worked with uh, the law de department, the College of Law with the University of New Mexico, and started their very first LLC, Early Childhood Co-op Center, that is designed to empower other parents in their shoes. So with the community school, just by simply creating a platform and intentionally engaging the wisdom of the most vulnerable populations, that's identified, of course, we all know by data, but just having a platform of someone who's intentionally engaging them in the discussion and making sure that their voice is more than heard, but that it's implemented and they're part of it. It's a perfect transition to our next and last question. Given what was shared today. What recommendations do you have for policymakers, for practitioners at the federal, state, or local levels? You talked about uh, that these these women worked with a local legislator to accommodate what mm -hmm. they wanted to do. So, what would you recommend? Well, of course, this being community schools, instead of investing in, in another silver bullet, this, uh, there's been a, a number of research and evaluations. Mm -hmm and looking at what's happening uh, with our nation now, the decentralization of decision-making, decision districts can now utilize Title I funds, Title IV funds to begin community schools. Uh, I know our organization, Institute for Educational Leadership, as I talked about earlier, mobilizes cross-sector leadership groups uh, so they can contribute and leverage those dollars and uh, create policy that's more flexible for mothers in those situations to create some community-based solutions. Uh, I think that's the, uh, and, and create a diversified funding stream also collectively, so the funding also isn't as fragmented. Mark, what would you add? I would say at the federal level to preserve SNAP, and in, if not expand SNAP, uh, and uh, TANF, and create the policy framework that uh, Jose alluded to in terms of allowing greater flexibility of the integration of different funds so that students can improve their lives through education and training in the communities that they're in and foster and encourage partnerships between educational systems and educational institutions and the agencies that 
facilitate or manage the funds that come from the federal government. And at the state level, with, with that kind of collaborative framework can be set, at that level it opens the door for states to be able to create the state policy context and the regulations that make it easier and more likely for institutions like ours to be able to integrate funds and to integrate programs. And I would say it's really important to find some policy mechanism to encourage and to continue to grow on the foundation of community engagement that community colleges have. I mean, community college, community is our middle name, and we grew out of the matrix of the notion of democratizing higher education. And so I think it's a foundation that could really be leveraged for engaging uh, community-based organizations to wrap around our students in our communities and to help folks to access greater opportunity through the community college pathway. Thank you, Mark. And Sarah, what would your recommendations be? Yeah, to, just to add on, on to what others have said, um, you know, with regard to SNAP, um, I, I would encourage um, at the federal level to expand uh, SNAP eligibility rules for students. Um, there are a lot of um, a lot of places where students uh, won't qualify for SNAP um, based on based on the work requirements related to that, and um, and it, it's just a great uh, a great benefit that can really help help students over a period of time while they're in school. Um, and then, of course, uh, the likelihood that they'll get off SNAP um, is greater if they're able to graduate. Um, the other thing that I, I would say, I, I got a chance to learn about something really interesting that happened in Florida, which was an effort to expand the volunteer income tax assistance program in the state of Florida. And um, we, we have found in Single Stop's research of, of our programs is that students um, who utilized uh, both the Single Stop Benefits platform as well as the free tax assistance on, on their campus, um, they had even higher rates of, of persistence and success um, than students who did not get their taxes done on campus but utilized other single stop services. And so we just really believe in, um, in that because it can put a, a huge amount of funding into an individual's pocket at once. And of course, you need to couple that with some financial counseling. But, um, but the state of Florida was able to expand the VITA program uh, by, by lobbying the state legislature. There, there was a group, a nonprofit group, that, um, that took this to the state legislature and said, we want you to allocate money um, to organizations across the state to increase the number of uh, VITA uh, opportunities that we're able to have here and and the way they were successful is that they did some research to find out how much federal money and returns was being left on the table by Floridians and um, and so they were able to, to lobby what what is a fairly conservative legislature um, to say you know you don't want the federal government to keep to keep your citizens money let's let's grow this program um, and they did it and um, and and uh, they funneled the money through the United Ways across the state, and and just a really successful effort to to bring a really valuable service um, to a lot of communities. And so I think that there's a great opportunity to do that in conjunction with um, 
with the community schools or community colleges to get this help to families. Kathy, I'll close with you. Sure, thank you. So as a researcher, of course, I'm going to advocate for funds for <laughs> additional research, um, which, is, which is, of course, important. One thing I've been hearing from the practitioners here is that a local approach seems really important. It sounds like you know some of these needs are in common across students, um, so, but, but some are not, you know, like Mark's example, affordable housing may not be a big issue in some, some other areas. So it seems that that local research is important, the local understanding, um, the local approach, and then research on, you know, which interventions are particularly effective. I, I started off talking about the low success rate of community college students and I'd love to go to go back to that because we really need to to solve that. It sounds like we've talked about a lot of really great solutions. Um, so additional research so we can really really lift up these solutions and point to them and more community college students means more upward mobility and greater equity. Thanks for joining us for this episode of STEM Wire Live. If you want to learn more about this topic or review the research mentioned during part one and part two of this podcast, please visit us at www.cna.org forward slash education.